Hey guys, I'm Tamara Melton. And I'm Deanna Bellany. We are the co-founders of Diversify Dietetics, a nonprofit community dedicated to increasing the racial and ethnic diversity in the field of nutrition and dietetics. Welcome to Feed Me the Facts. everybody. Welcome to Feed Me the Facts. Deanna here, and I'm excited to be talking today about second career dietitians and non-traditional dietetic students with Dr. Knox Kazmier-Shook. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Rehabilitation, Exercise, and Nutrition Science at the University of Cincinnati, where she is in her first year. For the last 10 years, she has dedicated her whole person to promoting and advocating for equitable action through serving on several task force, mentoring students, disseminating scholarly works, and serving a community. Dr. Knox Kazmierschuk's research focuses on health disparities and equity, examining the intersections of race, gender, class, and sexual orientation. Additionally, she makes use of community-based participatory research to make meaning out of the experiences of the disenfranchised and marginalized to address health disparities through equitable approaches. She is currently conducting several research studies on racial identity and health habits, African-American women and cardiometabolic risk factors, and racial breastfeeding disparities. Dr. Knox Kazmierschuk, thank you so much for being on Feed Me the Facts. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So, I mean, from your bio, you are doing a lot of amazing things, and we could talk to you about so many of those different things, but today we are focusing on second career dietetic students, non-traditional dietetic students. But before we dive deeper into that, I just want to know if you can tell us a little bit about your educational pathway and what sparked some of your research interests. They're very interesting and your desire to be where you are now. So my my path was relatively circuitous where I started off as an, actually I started off as a pre-med bio major um, at my undergraduate. And after the first semester of taking cell biology, Um, anatomy and physiology, um, and a couple other kind of heavy-hitting classes. I was kind of of in a state. I I had always been a very good student. I was um, honor society in high school at my college prep high school. And so going through the process of coming to college and then getting into these upper-level courses where you had um, individuals who were also high achievers, but then mm-hmm. struggling, it, it really took its toll on me. I, I was there, it was a very difficult first semester um, with struggling through and then having to withdraw from one of the biology courses. And so it really started me to um, stop and to, to rethink what it was that I wanted to do. And in that process, I did a lot of career exploration with the career um, center on campus, which was great for me. Um, and at that point in time, I still didn't think dietetics. I thought, oh, exercise science. I'm like, I, I think I can do this. This is something that I really enjoy. It's something that I'm, I've been immersed in the entirety of my life because I've been an athlete the entirety of my life. And so I really thought that this would be the the thing that, that I did. Um, and so I, I actually got involved into an in exercise science, did my undergraduate degree in exercise science and um, athletic training. I um, sat for my athletic training examination and I just knew that I'd be going on to do my 
master's in athletic training. Mm -hmm. And so I did my master's in athletic training, got a, got a job right after graduating at the University of, uh, University of Chicago, working as an athletic trainer and strength coach for men's and women's soccer, and also teaching some classes in the physical education department. And I started getting a lot of questions about nutrition. And I had a few nutrition courses in my undergrad for my undergraduate major, and then also at the graduate level as I was going through for my exercise, phys, and kinesiology master's degree. And I, I really enjoyed it. And it was already such a big part of my life by me being an athlete um, in, at, at the undergraduate level and then also at the high school level that I thought that it was something that I wanted to do, um, especially with having so many questions from my student athletes that I was working with. And then on top of having questions, sending them to um, the, the hospital to, to get help with their diets. We had a few um, athletes that had eating disorders and some that were just really curious in terms of um, doing something different. And so they would come back with these meal plans that were not in any way, shape, or form really appropriate for an athlete. They were severely under calories for an athlete. And so it occurred to me that, oh, you know, these dietitian people, they, they really don't understand and, and get exercise and athletics. And so I, I, I thought at that point in time, like, this, this is a niche for me. This is going to be the thing that, that I do. And um, I didn't, I wasn't planning on doing another master's. I was planning on trying to do a PhD program in nutrition. However, because I wanted to be a, a dietitian, I soon learned that I had a lot of um, credits that, that I would have to go back and pick up related to the didactic coursework, be able to sit for the, well, first to be able to get my ver verification statement, and then next to be able to get an internship to sit for the exam. And so ultimately, I decided to do a master's because after looking at a number of programs, I was told that it would take me probably about a year, maybe a year and a half to kind of pick up these different courses to move forward. And I kept thinking, like, well, that's, that's basically a master's. I'm like, that's mm -hmm. crazy that I'd have to do that. And so I ended up deciding to, to look into master's programs. I found a master's program that allowed me to pick up, backtrack and pick up some of those courses concurrently and I could be done in two years. And so that's what I ultimately ended up doing um, and then kind of really got bit by the chemistry bug and started doing work in the biochemistry lab and then ultimately did a, another master's concurrently with the dietetics master's in, um, in chemistry. And it wasn't really until I did my PhD that I switched over and started doing more community work, specifically more work in health equity. Well, I, I kind of take that back. I, I started doing some of that work with my graduate assistantship. I had a split graduate assistantship. Half my time was with the sports dietitian who also had a background in exercise physiology. And then with um, one of my mentors, who's still my mentor to, to, this, to this day, um, Dr. Friesen, she was doing community work in one of the rural communities in Indiana. And so I 
really got interested in doing the community work and doing some worksite wellness at that point in time. But the spin with health equity and health disparities really was fermented in my doctoral work, um, particularly when I started thinking about the struggles of my, my mother and then the struggles of families and, and other um, friends uh, of mine that were African-American women. So in that path, you originally started out kind of doing a lot of work with strength-based training. Were you surprised to find yourself kind of transitioning into more research roles or was that kind of a natural progression? You knew you were going to kind of end up there. You wanted to get your PhD when you kind of started um, doing the work in your different master's degrees or what was that? It was was a pretty natural progression. So I I knew that I wanted to do, to, to go back and get a PhD and I, was looking at PhD programs when I was doing my first master's in um, exercise. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked in a, in a biomechanics lab um, doing data with digitizing movements. And my um, advisor did a lot of research. And at that point in time, I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to do motor control and learning. And so I, I had a... Um, pretty big interest in motor control and and learning. And so I thought that that would be potentially the route I would go in and that would be my, my PhD. Um, But you know, things change if you allow yourself to be open. um, Life has a certain fluidity to it. And so um, I ended up just kind of slowly kind of transitioning out of that particular space based on the different experiences that I was having. Yeah. And based on just coming in contact with people and seeing that there was a need and then just learning more about myself in terms of um, the different things that I enjoyed and, and liked. But I mean, like I never, I, mean, I always knew that I would do ultimately do a, a PhD. Um, I kind of, I, I grew up in Urbana, Urbana Illinois for mm-hmm. part of my time. And one of my um, childhood friends, her father was a professor and that was kind of my first introduction into um, academia and what that is and what that looks like. Because I would always always think to myself, he's at home. Like, <laughs> he's picking us up from, from school. I'm like, what does, what does their father do? What does this guy do? And yeah. he would say that he teaches. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. I'm like, man, it's <laughs> a small town. And you know, you're, you're not at the, the elementary school. I'm like, and I don't think you're at the high school either. And so he said that he taught at the university. And I was like, oh, okay. And you, things just kind of stick with you. Yeah. As a child kind of in, in the back of your in, in the back of your mind. And so it just kind of stuck with me. Like, I think I want to do that. Yeah. And, and um, I think I really kind of vocalized that as I was doing my, my master's degree, that that was something that I wanted to do. But I definitely wanted to get work experience mm-hmm. prior to um, moving into that role. And so I, I did, I spent a lot of time actually working clinically. So first working clinically as an athletic trainer and being mm-hmm. in practice in that way, and then working clinically later on as a, as a dietitian. Awesome. I love that. I love just kind of taking your path and kind of seeing things that interest you and pursuing those things and, um, you know, not being um, so focused on, on one particular experience, but just kind of letting it be fluid and shape you. So how would you, um, as an educator or just as a second degree dietitian, how would you define a non-traditional student or um, a second career dietitian? How would you define it? 
So I think that there are a number of definitions for it. Uh, traditionally, as from an education standpoint, we say that anyone who's 25 or, or older is a non is a non-traditional student and by kind of looking at that particular age bracket it encapsulates a number of other um, characteristics in there so typically if you're 25 or older you're probably working full-time mm -hmm. so it encapsulates that um, if you are 25 and older and you're working full-time a lot of times you might have a family you might mm -hmm. be married, you have different life experiences as well. Um, and so typically that's what academia kind of focuses in on, but there, to, to me, there are other categories of untraditional students. So being a underrepresented minority makes mm -hmm. you a non-traditional student or um, being a, a woman, um, being an international student. So I kind of really look at it from more of a historical standpoint of um, who was allowed into academic spaces um, when these institutions were first set up, mm -hmm. um, particularly when we're talking about the, the U.S. and it was um, typically white males um, of, of a certain age that were allowed into those spaces. And so from that standpoint, there are a lot of these, of, of the structures that still exist in, in academia, academia that um, puts individuals who might not fit into that particular category at a, at a disadvantage. So yeah. we still structure classes kind of in these very standard ways doing mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. Most of the classes occur during the daytime. Most of them are on campus. And so if you are working that might not fit your schedule if you're a parent whether it's a dad or a mom that might not fit your schedule or be conducive to trying to rear your your children and then if you are a underrepresented minority student once again you have structures that are there that um, are going to make it harder for you to navigate in in that space those are some really important points. And I think I've never yeah, necessarily thought about um, all the other structural issues that can make you a yeah, non-traditional student. And so you kind of talked to some of the challenges. Do you have any particular challenges that you as an individual face on your path to becoming a dietitian that kind of where you lived out those structural um, barriers as you were becoming a dietitian? So I think that for, for me, I was able to fully immerse myself in in the academic work. So I know a lot of people, they have to go part-time and it's harder going part-time to, to finish up. Um, it's whether it's at the undergraduate or graduate level, it's just a lot harder to, to do that particular thing um, because your programming seems kind of disjointed. And for a program like dietetics, it's the, the integration is really important. So you go through the process and you're taking all your chemistries or you're taking your biologies or your microbiology and now all of a sudden maybe you had those three years ago or maybe even longer and now you're getting ready to, to get into some of the coursework, particularly getting into the macronutrients or micronutrient coursework where 
it's where you're going back through and talking about the, the biochemical pathways. And I think it's really challenging to be so far removed from the hard science and then now trying to connect it and integrate mm -hmm. it into the work of dietetics. And so that's definitely a challenge that luckily I didn't have to um, navigate, but I did work full time and some weeks more than full time. And so that was a challenge that I had to negotiate um, trying to pay for, for everything. So I did have a graduate assistantship, luckily, but those of us who have been graduate assistants know that as a graduate assistant, you're really not paid very much. And it's really hard to live on what you're making as a graduate assistant. Um, you're allocated those 20 hours. And so you have to try to pick up work someplace else if you don't have assistance to be able to try to, you're not paying for tuition, but you're paying for living expenses. So you're paying for food and you're paying for your housing and transportation. You're paying for books and all those different things. And so I worked at the YMCA for an additional 20 hours a week. And sometimes I would pick up a little bit more on the weekends. And so my life was basically spent on campus <laughs> in, in the diet office. And then also at the at the gym mm -hmm. there or sometimes I would and this is where I would pick up the extra money would be doing um, corporate wellness for YMCA or doing um, CPR and first aid trainings for them and they would send me out on weekends to do that or it might be in the evening time but I was literally working a full-time job and also yeah, juggling so much a wow. load of classes and so my life was basically if I wasn't at work or on campus working for, for my graduate assistantship, I was at home or in the library or in some coffee shop working. So I, I basically for, for went any sort of um, social life because I <laughs> just didn't have time for that. Yeah. I kind of think about people who, if they had uh, a spouse or if they had children, to be able to do that, you're, you're not going to be able to forgo a social life. You just can't put your kid or your husband on the shelf and say, okay, I'll see you later you know, <laughs> right. do this thing for the next, you know, two, two years or two and a half years, however long it takes you to get through. So, I mean, that, that piece was challenging, but it was made less so challenging because I didn't have some of those other mm -hmm. um, characteristics of non-traditional students. Um, in terms of race, I, I think that it was challenging being in a small town and being in a program where I was the only African-American and then really there was only one other person of color wow. there in the entire program that was um, a faculty member who was from India and so that was that was kind of challenging yeah being in that space like trying to find someone who might be having some of the hardships or experiences that I had being being there because a lot of times I think especially at that time period we really didn't talk about um cultural competence or mm -hmm. cultural humility or sensitivity and we definitely didn't really talk about equity or inclusion at all campuses were talking about diversity but it was more so bean counting of okay do we have these certain numbers here okay well we have these people here but and, and that was basically it it was more or less trying to think about getting representation, but once you have that representation, okay, so what obstacles might these individuals have once they're there on campus? You know, 
it's the it's it's the climate a climate conducive for them to be able to succeed or is it hostile or, or is there um, some some bias that that might exist in, in that space and I guess like for, for me I was pretty fortunate I mean I had two really phenomenal um, graduate advisors where I didn't feel that particular thing like my my advisor Dr. Friesen she was pretty phenomenal in making you feel at home and my mom would always say that she was my mother away that she uh-huh. took such good care of me but that's not really a lot of times that's not the experience for students I mean I, I consider myself really lucky that I landed there with with her yeah and I think it's it's crazy because even today, you know, we have um, different diversified dietetic community members that are facing very similar challenges or going through the same things. And kind of like you said, um, even though the conversations maybe not being had at the campuses is something that these individuals definitely feel. So are there, I guess, other resources for um, students who maybe are, you know, there's not an advisor nearby, there's not not somebody there that can kind of help them when they're dealing with not only being maybe a person of color in this internship, but also dealing with kind of being older or being um, a second career and having to deal with all that comes with that as well. Mm -hmm. I think campuses have become more um, astute in terms of being able to try to gauge the needs of the students that they're bringing Mm -hmm. to campus. So, now on most campuses, you'll have um, diversity or inclusion and and equity offices there. Yeah. You'll also have different student centers on campus as well. And a lot of times for underrepresented minority students now, you'll have student affinity groups on campus and you'll have um, programming that starts prior to coming to campus mm-hmm. to really help with kind of acculturating students to the the campus life and really showing them around campus because some of it's also just the logistics of of the campus and and trying to figure out where things are at and who do you need to go to for different pieces of information and so some of those are, are different things that like if you've had a family member go to college you get that yeah informally and then some of it you're, you also might get formally from those those mentors or faculty that really connect with you. And so I think that having some of the different programs now where, where students are able to come to campus early to be on campus, to get settled into their dorms, to tour the campus, to have some face time and contact with the, the faculty that are in their program really helps with stripping that away where some of those barriers start kind of falling down. Um, I know here we do something called first year experience Mm -hmm. at University of Cincinnati where we bring um, all our first year students onto campus and University of Cincinnati is a urban serving um, university and we actually have a lot of first generation college students. I also kind of lump first generation college students in with kind of being non-traditional students from the sense of the the definition that I had kind of laid out earlier or provided context to earlier and so they're able to come to campus they tour the campus they have um, peer mentors embedded 
in, in their cohort as well. So that way they're able to interact and ask questions of those um, peer mentors. I think that those are things that as um, campuses continue to diversify, we need to be really intentional about setting up programming such as that so that way students are able to find their, their, their space and to able to increase their, their comfort level so that way they're able to succeed while they're, while they're on campus with us. So we talked a lot about the barriers and the challenges, but what on the other side, what are some of the, I guess, pros or benefits to being um, a non-traditional or a second career dietitian? I think so. One of the great things about being, for, for me, when I came in, I already had a lot of experience that I was bringing mm-hmm. with me. And because of my, my previous major and, and master's, there was a, a good amount of overlap. And so it was really easy for me to transition into doing the work because I had already been out there, particularly when we started talking about doing some of the clinical experiences and particularly when I got to my internship, mm-hmm. um, I had no problem with going into patient's room, pulling up a chair and having a conversation with them or doing um, physical examinations on patients. So it's always kind of funny where when I went through the didactic work, we were doing, they didn't call it a physical focused examination at that point in time period. It was just, it was just part of the nutrition, standard nutrition assessment that you would go through and you would look for different clinical signs of deficiencies. So we were already learning that back in 2003 and, and doing that particular thing. But then when I got out to the hospitals, no one was really doing it. It was like, I don't want to touch people's ankles <laughs> or their feet. I'm afraid of touching feet. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I've been taping ankles and feet <laughs> for the past 10 odd years or, you know, palpating groins and looking at <laughs> all sorts of things that I'm like, I have no problem with doing that. Right. So um, I kind of went in and put my hands, like I asked if I could touch people's feet or ankle and ask if I could see tongues. And you know, <laughs> I think that, my preceptors were kind of in awe or either they thought I was insane. <laughs> it's actually literally going in there and laying hands on her patients. Yeah. And like that was just my background and experience from um, being an athletic trainer is you touch people. Right. <laughs> um, the other, the other things, and I saw this from uh, some of my other peers that came in that were also non-traditional they were really focused because they're like, I'm, I'm here. I'm spending this time here. It's time away from my family. Mm-hmm. I'm away from my, my job and I'm paying for this myself. So I need to do this and get this done. So it, it, it kind of sharpens you to a certain extent. Um, but it also brings in all these really rich and diverse experiences right. in the classroom and into the, the clinics when, when you're in your practice settings and, um, it's really beneficial for other students to hear these different experiences and to see how the non-traditional students operate and, and work. Um, so there are a number of good um, re- educational research studies that look at what diversity does in terms of a classroom space or a college campus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really beneficial for em- all, all the parties. So right. you, you learn, you're able to learn from each other and you're able to, shift perspectives from having all these different experiences with um, people that are different from from yourself. 
Yeah, that kind of touches on uh, a question that we had about the impact of diversity. You know, of course, we're focused on people of color, but on the different experience, like you said, of maybe a first generation student or second career student or um, all the different kind of facets that you can be. Um, so for those students out there, I guess, what advice would you give someone who's considering becoming a dietitian? Maybe they're a little bit older, maybe they are not wanting to or looking at the financial implications of it, kind of weighing the pros and cons that way, what advice would you give as someone who's kind of gone through the process of becoming um, a dietitian later in their career or as a non-traditional student? I mean, so I would say that it's, it's challenging. And I'm not going to even lie or try to sugarcoat that. I think that a lot of times we'll try to recruit people for, for programs, but we don't really lay out all the details for them so they really can't make an informed decision. I think that's really a disservice to the people that might be interested in, in this career. So you want them to be absolutely informed to, to say, well, this is something that I want to do. So letting them know, hey, you know, we're going to have to take a lot of chemistry to mm -hmm. do this thing. Hey, you, you take anatomy and physiology. Hey, you're going to have to take some business courses too, you know, and just kind of let them know that it's, a really comprehensive degree and it is a science heavy degree but it's really rewarding and fulfilling and if it's something that you're really passionate about then you should move forward with with doing it but move forward with all the information and be informed so my biggest advice would just be to to, to try to get really informed about what mm -hmm. this entails so understanding the um, the didactic portion of the coursework and then also understanding that, oh, okay, I'm, I'm doing this didactic piece of, of this. However, you know, my, my coursework won't be done with that didactic piece. I still have to do the supervised practice mm -hmm. portion of this and, and knowing how long that might take. So you're looking at a four-year degree plus potentially a, an extra year and then you have to do the registration examination. Yeah. Just information, I, you'd be surprised at how many students I come across who didn't realize that they had to do supervised practice mm -hmm. and then didn't realize that, oh, this is really competitive. So, you know, <laughs> there are only half the people that try to get supervised practice, only half of them are actually going to get that experience if they're applying through kind of a traditional internship. And so no, knowing that it's competitive, but also knowing that as a non-traditional student, there are a lot of different, you, you bring a lot of value with you and you need to play to that value. So if you had a career some doing something else, whatever it might've been, even if it was not related to dietetics, so let's say it wasn't an exercise, maybe it was in something else, maybe it was in business, mm -hmm. that still gives you an advantage because you're bringing additional knowledge and experience with you. So you're bringing a host of management experience, marketing experience with you if you if you did a business degree. So really kind of thinking about that and trying to leverage that particular thing. Um, another advice would be seeking out a mentor, seeking out someone who is going to help you navigate that space. Because you might go to an institution that doesn't have all the things in place like I have at my current inst institution where you have all these different offices and affinity groups and different resources there. So you might go someplace where you don't have that. 
So, so find that person who's going to be your cheerleader and an advocate. That's good. Those are all really great resources and quick shameless plug for the Diversified Dietetics Mentor Program too, if you are looking for a mentor. Um, what, is there a piece of advice? Because I love that you said information because I think that this field, um, if you don't know what all it entails, kind of like you said, can be kind of like, oh, wow, I have to do this too yeah. and this and this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> is there, um, I guess, one thing you wish you knew before you had gotten started that you now know that you wish you could have like told your, your former self? I think the big thing was the, so I, I knew that I would have to do um, supervised practice. However, I thought that it was kind of wrapped up and encompassed in my um, master's degree. Mm. And it wasn't. Right. Because it was a didactic program. And so, like, if I knew what I knew then, I <laughs> would have looked into a coordinated master's program because that would have saved me time as well as money. Yeah, for those that don't know, could you explain what a coordinated master's program is? So coordinated master's program, it intertwines your didactic coursework and the supervised practice experience. And so where I went for two years and then did a year of internship, I could have basically have done the didactic and the supervised practice woven together and been done in that two-year time period. So it would have saved me a year of time along with... Um, Luckily, I didn't have to pay for my, my internship. They actually, it was one of the few internships in the country that pay the interns. Oh, wow. That's awesome. But if I would have had to pay for an internship, and a lot of these internships, let's be honest, they're, they're expensive. They are, yeah. It would have saved money as well. And this is going to be true. So if you're looking at um, your, your bachelor's, trying to find a coordinated program, although now we're kind of phasing out and moving on to the master's mm -hmm. degree, but if you're able to, and you're, you're looking at right now, you're going to be graduating soon from your high school or, or you're maybe in a community college and you're looking at transitioning to a university, a four-year institution, find out whether or not they have a coordinated master's program. Yeah. And if they do, sign up for that. I know here at University of Cincinnati, we are just getting ready to um, transition into our coordinated master's program, and we're going to be mar starting to market that soon. But it allows the student to go to school for five years and get their master's and also have their supervised practice hours done so they can sit for the examination, opposed to doing four years and then two years of a master's program and then potentially doing a supervised practice experience, which now you're at seven years. Oh, you know? yeah. Or if you can find a, a master's later on that has the supervised practice entwined, you're, you're still at six years. So trying to find a program that um, has it really integrated well means that you can do this in, in five years and it's going to save you money and, and time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great tip, especially now. I think it's a perfect time for kind of have that message because Dicus is open. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Knox Kazmierczuk, for kind of telling us about all of the things around second career students and non-traditional students. We really appreciate having your perspective as somebody that's been through it, but also as an educator. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I greatly appreciate it. And hopefully, you know, I think that you're, you'll be posting my information on online with the podcast as well. And so yeah. if students have questions, they can feel free to reach out to me. 
Oh, great. Good. Yeah. So we'll be posting that. It'll be all in our show notes. Um, so you can get in contact uh, with Dr. Knox Kazmir Shook. Um, but again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can find all of our past episodes in the podcast app or on our website, www.diversifydietetics.org. Also, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Diversify Dietetics.